Good morning. Welcome to those of you who are watching online. Thanks for your continued faithfulness. Feel free to be chatting in the YouTube chat box too while you join us online together. I want to say a special welcome if anybody is here today for Memorial Cup events as well. And uh, welcome to Sea Dog Country. So uh, um, before we get started, actually, I wanted just to talk to you about something um, that we're going to be talking about throughout the summer months as a congregation. You got a little bit of a glimpse of it just to, um, with the great video that the students um, put together. We, um, we, in, we started this week, for some of you, participated in Active in Mission, which is a fundraising endeavor to help kids who have, uh, because of the pandemic, fallen out of the education system. So they were in school and then the pandemic hit and maybe their school didn't operate in the way it did, so they stopped going. And many of them have entered the workforce as children in parts of the world. And um, now that school is starting back up again, many of them have not returned. And there's a great burden of these kids are now going to be destitute to a life of poverty, uh, working in very unsafe uh, work environments, and just uh, raising money to help uh, that generation. We don't want to lose a generation um, because of the pandemic. I think as churches, and I know as our church, we have a similar concern for the spiritual lives of our kids and youth as well. That in the past two years, many of them have missed many of the important faith development opportunities that come with being actively involved in the life of a local congregation. And that now with two years kind of uh, behind us, um, how is it that we re-engage our, not just our students, but how is it that we provide loving adults in their life who will walk with them through these important faith development years. And so we are on a mission to replenish our children's and youth ministry teams to full capacity for the fall. Not starting in the fall, but ready to go for the fall so that we can give our very, very best to this generation who have missed out on so much and for whom this ministry um, means so much. We have gotten by to this point with our amazing volunteers, but I'll be honest with you, barely. Uh, without the excellent leadership of Sandy and Amy and the team to work and reconfigure things every week to try to accommodate given the people that we have, um, our issue is not quality of volunteers, not at all. Our issue is quantity of volunteers and that we are in great need for a number of people to be prayerfully thinking about this summer saying, in the fall, I'm going to be involved. And I'm going to walk with those kids and I'm going to be there. Because you know this, if you've grown up in church and if you went to kids ministry or you went to youth group as a kid, you know it's the people, it's the adults, it's the leaders that make the difference. It's not the cool videos that they show. Some of you grew up, and I'm going to throw out some names here this morning and I don't mean to embarrass you. Lois Vincent and Dodie Humphrey, excellent middle school leaders. Bill and Kathy London taught Sunday school. BJ and Corinne McDonald, Stan and Ruth, Jill Nyland, Susan Bambury, Dave and Amy Russell, Mark and Caitlin Corkum, just to throw out in some. For some of you, when you hear those names, you have great memories. You think, oh, I was in youth ministry. I was in kids ministry when they were leading. And they dedicated at least a night a week consistently to be there and to walk with you and to walk important, informative years in a young person's life. So, I am praying for you, and I am praying that the Lord would be tapping some of you on the shoulder to say, you know what, it's my turn. I'm going to step up, and I am going to have what will honestly be, and having had done it for many years, one of the greatest joys of your life 
getting to work in kids' ministry or student ministry. So I invite you to be praying about that important opportunity, even now in June, thinking for September. All right, thank you. Uh, today, we started um, a new summer series last week. I admit it, I got a little eager and started it a week early. Um, but we're going to continue it this week, looking at, between now and the end of uh, August, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching in Matthew's chapter 5 to 7. Last week, I looked at three of the Beatitudes, which are some specific descriptions that Jesus uses to capture what the Christian life looks like. So I did three last week. I'm going to do three today. Next week, Pastor James will be speaking. He's going to be speaking in Mandarin with English translation. For some of you who are going to get to see how that experience looks like. We're really looking forward to that. And then we'll finish up the very last of the Beatitudes in August. So we're jumping around a little, but I know you can handle it. You can keep up. So we're looking forward to it. So Matthew chapter 5, um, 5 to 7, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus goes and he sits on a mountaintop and he gives a teaching to his disciples. Now, you and I might read that and think, okay, why is it important where he sat? I mean, who cares? He sat on a mountain, but he gave this teaching. But if you're Matthew's audience, good Jewish people, students of the Torah, when you hear that, you hear something completely different. Let me give you an example. If I told you today there is a young man who has cancer and is looking to raise money for cancer research, and he went to St. John's Newfoundland and he dipped his foot in the ocean, and he's now going to run a marathon a day for the rest of the months until he reaches the Pacific coast, you would say, oh, this guy is the new Terry Fox. The fact that he goes and puts his foot in the ocean and is going to run a marathon a day and that he's raising money for cancer research, he's doing exactly what Terry Fox did. And we would immediately think, oh, he's the new Terry Fox. When Jesus goes and sits on the mountain and sits down, which in the ancient world was the way you told everybody, you know, it was the old, sit down, we're about to start this thing. It was his way of telling everybody, I'm the new Moses. And people would have been murmuring when they saw him do that. Who does this guy think he is, Moses or something like that? Moses went up to the mountain five different times, receives a word from the Lord, and now brings it to us, which is exactly what Jesus was doing. And so when Jesus sits down and prepares to teach, people are listening. And let me just share with you what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, let me just read for you the first 12 verses. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsify, falsely say things, all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because for in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. So today we're going to look at just three of these Beatitudes. Um, 
And so let's start with the first one, which is blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, two weeks ago in our conversation on Community Outreach Sunday, we talked about the posture that we need to have as we approach ministry in priority neighborhoods. And Pastor John said it's critical to remember that all of us, that all of us are poor in some way. That because of the fallen world we live in, maybe we're financially poor, we have poor mental health, we have relationship poor, we're career poor, we're housing poor, we're health poor, that all of us have some manner of poverty that's part of our story. And acknowledging this can be difficult because we've grown up to understand being wealthy and being independent is the highest value in North American culture, right? No one need, wants to be in need or to admit that they have any Need. But Jesus starts off this new teaching in the sermon saying, blessed or, or deeply happy are those who know that in their spirit, in their soul, they are poor. Now, when I was in seminary um, in our last year, just before they released all of the students to go and ruin churches around the Maritimes, uh, they took us to Spring Hill Penitentiary in Nova Scotia. And um, there, they didn't leave us there, but there we went and we met with a number of Christian inmates who were people of faith. Uh, they had had some training and they were involved in the chaplaincy program as inmates in the prison. And the way it was going to work is we were each to be assigned an inmate, a Christian brother to meet with. We were going to interview them and they were going to interview us. And so we had 45 minutes each to meet one-on-one -on -one in the chapel space to have these interviews. So we were given permission to ask any question that we wanted to the Christian brother that we were going to be meeting with. And so we did. We sat down. We started asking them all kinds of questions about their life. And they recounted almost all of them how they'd had brutal childhoods. They came from very broken and dysfunctional families. That they'd made some wrong choices in their teenage years. And they'd ended up involved in a life of crime. And in some cases, even violence. And in their conversation, they held nothing back. They did not varnish their story at all. They did not make themselves try to sound any better than they were. And they shared how in their darkest of moments, God spoke to them, reached out to them with his mercy. They opened their hearts, received him in faith, and were believers, our sisters and brothers in Christ. Then the tables were turned. They got to interview us for 45 minutes, one-on-one. -on -one. And they got to ask us questions like, tell me about the most difficult thing that's happened to you in your life. Tell us about a wrong path that maybe you had gone down at some point. Tell us about some of the doubts you have about God. Tell us some of the struggles that you are currently facing. When those interviews were done, we seminary students sat in chairs in a circle. And behind us stood the Christian brother who had interviewed us. And they gave a report on us. Now, this was interesting. Because when they stood around and stood behind us and gave a summary of who we are, we got really uncomfortable. The inmates recounted how they had been open and honest about their childhoods, about the decisions that they'd made, about the struggles that they had, about the consequences that they were facing now in their life. That they were honest about the poverty of soul in their life. And that when they shared, they were met with Christian platitudes, surface answers, and cliches by these young pastors who 
whom they had interviewed. I remember one person saying, I'm highly skeptical whether this guy's going to make it in ministry because he's got so much junk in his life and it's all going to come out and ruin him and probably his church. I remember someone else saying at one point, you know, I opened up about my own struggles. This person has some similar ones, but they won't talk about them and they're not comfortable talking about them. And in this moment, it became very obvious. There was two groups of people in this room, those who knew they were spiritually poor and those who didn't. And it was a very long drive back home from Spring Hill to Wolfville. Jesus starts his Beatitudes by asking this question, do you believe that in your spiritual poverty it's possible for God to bless your life? Because if not, we will not welcome what we do not think we need. This is the very nature of grace. Those who find grace so beautiful, so incredible, are those who know that they're spiritually poor that there's nothing we can do in our lives to earn it or make it happen on our own or complete enough religious tasks in order that God's like blown away by how great we are that he gives us something. No, the people who are amazed by grace are deeply aware of their spiritual poverty. And the people who find grace unfair and difficult to believe in are the people who are trying to be independent and do it all themselves. And here's the good news today. If you struggle with lust, anger, jealousy, impatience, envy, if you cannot have peace without a drink, if you cannot be happy without a certain amount of money in, the bank, in your bank account, then you are spiritually poor. And Jesus says, if you will acknowledge that, everything is yours. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Jesus offers us everything the very moment we are honest about how we are really doing. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this verse. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more room for God and his reign in your life. Are you at the end of your rope today, spiritually? Is your soul weary and tired and you just cannot fix it no matter how hard you try? Are you carrying around questions or doubts? Are you trying to fill that spiritual void with money, anything you can buy, with sex, with adventures, with trips, with anything that's new and sparkly and shiny, only to discover that no matter what you put into that hole will never make you happy and only make you longing for greater peace? Jesus says, for those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty, you get my kingdom. It will be yours. Next, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, when I was the associate pastor, every now and again, I would have to bring out my guitar and lead kids' songs, which I know some of you had a hard time imagining that this would be a thing. And one of the favorite songs that kids used to like to sing when I was doing kids' ministry was Going on a Lion's Hunt. Do you know this song? We're going to sing it here in a second, so just get ready. It was a call and response song. So the song leader would throw out a line and the people or the kids would respond by singing it back to them. Are you okay to try this this morning? You're in for it? You haven't had enough singing yet? Okay. Uh, so I would start saying, going on a lion hunt. I'm not a scared. No, no. And then, don't repeat that. Then I would kind of paint a scenario um, going through some tall grass. And then I would say something like, we can't go over it, can't go around it, have to go through it. 
Now, I admit, as someone who had seven years of university education in Christian environments, there is not one speck of theological helpfulness in any of this song whatsoever for children, but it was popular. So, um, but what is true about this song as it relates to mourning is that you can't go around it. You can't go under it. You can't ignore it. You have to go through it. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In my years of counseling people, when I get into a conversation, maybe someone's struggling with an addiction, or they're just pulling back from life, and they don't know why, and we're trying to figure out why, one of the things that, one of the questions I've learned to ask right away is this, have you had a loss in your life? Someone in your family passed away? Maybe a relationship has ended? Has there been a significant change in your life? And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I mean, it was probably three, four years ago. And I'll say, okay, well, tell me how you grieved that loss. And sometimes they will say, well, honestly, I don't think I have. Grief is incredibly powerful. And it does not go away just because we ignore it or leave it alone. It demands to be taken seriously. And left inside of us, undealt with, it will churn around and oftentimes come out in some very unhealthy and destructive ways in our life. Jesus says, blessed, you will find life when you mourn. And let's just be honest, there's a lot to mourn right now not just people and loved ones who've passed away, that we see violence in our world and we see just the global instability. We have losses during the pandemics, weddings and graduations and stuff that we didn't get to have. Some of you are, gr- are grieving today because you have a, loved, a kid or somebody getting married or graduating, and that even in, of itself, as exciting as it is, comes with a certain measure of grief. We grieve over the spiritual lostness in our country. Um, I had a moment the other day, I was walking by our exceptionally stacked library, if you're looking for summer reading and I saw a book and I saw an author's name and everything within me wanted to take that book run out the side door and throw it as hard as I could into the trees and I realized as I was like standing and thinking why am I so angry at seeing this book on our shelf I realized because the author had been somebody who I had read and followed and listened and gobbled up so much of the content that they had created over the years only to think, know that two weeks ago he had been charged with sexual assault. And I realized I'm, and I was angry about that. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. He invites us to be people who are aware of the brokenness that is all around us and long deeply for Jesus to come and to make it right. Now, this does not mean that we walk around sorrowful and mournful and sad. We walk around like Jesus. Jesus was joyful, and yet he wept and he mourned over the brokenness in our world. All right, we're going to jump ahead to verses 10 to 12, the last uh, verses kind of in this section, where Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, notice that in the order of verses, this comes immediately after Jesus' call for us to be peacemakers. 
And remember, Matthew is writing this down, and he's writing to a Jewish audience, um, all who grew up in Jewish homes with Jewish traditions and very strict Jewish communities who have now become Christ followers and are stepping away and leaving behind many of the habits and traditions uh, that were so essential, not just to belief, but to their everyday life. And they were facing persecution for it. They were disowned by families. They were not invited to weddings, to Sabbath gatherings, to family get-togethers. They were blacklisted in the business community. You don't want to deal with him. He's not a good Jewish person anymore. He's become a Christian. And some of them were physically beaten and assaulted. And Matthew captures these words. And he says, Jesus sees you. He sees the cost of your faith. And he sees you. Now, I realize for most of you, like me, and you grew up in Canada, the thought that Jesus tells us that persecution will be inevitable for everybody who follows him seems what? And the fact to even imagine what that might look like seems challenging. I know some of you have lived in parts of the world where that is not hard to imagine, and you have experienced it yourself. Let me tell you two things that persecution is not. First of all, if someone disagrees with what you believe in, that is not persecution. If someone disagrees with your views on social issues, moral issues, that's not persecution. It was true in Jesus' day, it's true in our day, it'll be true in my grandkids' day, it's just normal. That there will be disagreements. Disagreements is not persecution. Second, let's just be honest. Can we be honest for a second? There are some Christians who are mean, confrontational, and looking for a fight. And because of that, they are not liked by people that they live around or work with. They're not being persecuted, they're just being a jerk. And if you're going to be a jerk, you will get a certain response, and it is not persecution. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil things about you because of because of me. Meaning this, if people dislike us because of Jesus, that's understandable. Jesus says it's going to happen. If they dislike Jesus because of us, then there's a problem with how we are living out our faith. Read through the Gospels from beginning to end and notice this. The people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. It was the religious people that had the hardest time with him and were ultimately responsible for his death. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a pastor in Germany during the days of Adolf Hitler and the rise of the Third Reich. He was actually in an attempt to try to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And he wrote a fascinating book, so challenging to read, called The Cost of Discipleship, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I mean, here he is trying to kill Hitler and writing blessed about blessed are the peacemakers. It's incredibly detailed and insightful information. I encourage you to read it. But he says this, with each beatitude, as you read through them, and think about them as capturing what the Christian life would look like, we start to notice a gulf increases, that there's a gap. With each beatitude, the gap gets wider and wider and wider in terms of a life living unto Christ and just a life that's shaped by the culture around us, that as we read through and as we progress through them, the differences are going to become more and more obvious. And as he talks about persecution, he says this, by the time we are living out the Beatitudes in full force and they become who we are, 
You live that life out, and you are going to experience some measure of persecution for how you live and for what you believe. If we abandon self-sufficiency and live totally abandoned to Christ, if we grieve the brokenness of our world and long for and work for God's kingdom to come as it is in heaven, if we live humbly in relationships with each other instead of being self-promoting and participating in things that put other people down, if we live lives of purity instead of just kind of doing whatever we want, and if we are working to bring about peace instead of creating chaos and havoc and dysfunction, then he suggests if you start living that out, then your lifestyle is going to generate some persecution. And if that's not enough, Jesus says, be happy about it. Be joyful. Immediately, I think about the story in Acts chapter 5. These Christian believers, freshly empowered by the Holy Spirit, are simply out sharing the Jesus story with their culture. They get imprisoned because of it, and they get kind of going from this court to another court. And when they finally get released, they say this. The apostles left the religious court rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for Jesus. They had been counted worthy. They rejoiced because they were worthy of being treated like Jesus was treated, because they were living like Jesus was living. As Christians, we don't need to go looking for persecution or to start a fight. Let's just commit to living out the Beatitudes. Let's commit to be living the life as Jesus lived out his life. And in time, no doubt, we will experience some challenges because of it. When Jesus lived out his life and he encapsulated these beatitudes to some people, he was a fragrant offering, grace and beauty and truth to people. And it spoke to them because they were aware of their spiritual poverty. To other people who are just trying to be self-sufficient and do it on their own, he was the stench of death to them. And they opposed him. So, these next six weeks, we are going to be working our way through these Beatitudes. And here's my hope for all of us. Then in a day with so much going on and so much being talked about, that we will get a clear vision as we study these words, what it looks like to live faithfully for Christ right now. What it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that as that picture grows for us, our hearts would long for it to be true in our lives as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are captured by the magnificence and beauty of the life that Jesus is describing here. And immediately we all have this reaction, this kind of knee-jerk reaction of our hearts that says, if I live this way, I'm going to be different. If I live this way, I'm going to stand out. If I live this way, it means I am going to stop pursuing some things that I've been pursuing in my life. Lord, we realize to live this out requires a transformation of our hearts. And so this morning, Lord, we just simply open our hands and receive your grace because we can only live this way if your grace has touched and marked our lives. 
Lord, I pray for myself and for each person watching online, for people here in the room today, that we would be captivated by what Jesus is talking about in these verses and want it more than anything else. And we pray this in your name. Amen.